you know, we're so far past this idea that we're going to talk our kids out of doing drugs. That's not to say that the things that we do as parents and as communities do not uh, aren't preventative because they are. But part of drug prevention is arming them with a a sense of self-efficacy. And that's what neutral information does. Before we speak with Aaron Carr, author of Strung Out, One Last Hit and Other Lies That Nearly Killed Me, we'd like to thank these supporters of Parents and Addicts in Need, Plan Solutions Incorporated, personalized solutions for your financial challenges, investment, tax planning, retirement, and more at plansolutions.com. Trauma Law California, Shannon Hezkeff, personal injury and criminal defense lawyer walking alongside clients through the traumas that land them in the legal system since 2017. TraumaLawCA.com. Don't Hide the Scars, a weekly podcast focused on addiction and recovery. Created by the nonprofit Pain, parents and addicts in need, and founded by Flint Anderson. Aaron Carr, the author of Strung Out, One Last Hit, and Other Lies That Nearly Killed Me. Thank you for joining founder of Parents and Addicts in Need, Flint Anderson, and myself, Jason Lachance, on the Don't Hide the Scars podcast. Nice to be here. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for joining us again. This is we're really looking forward to this this conversation. That's for sure. Um, absolutely. So, you know, I mean, uh, you spoke with Flint before and really touched on your book, which I have some questions for because now I got to go and order it because I'm the reader. Um, <laughs> but you did this awesome article um, that Flint and I. It was on a topic we were both fired up with talking about Matthew Perry releasing his autobiography. And right. you said something in there that, that we were kind of fired <laughs> up about. Not everybody has nine million to devote to recovery. And right. we were just like, shit, talk about a deterrent for people. Oh, it took him nine million. Well, I don't have that, you know, kind of a throw the hands up kind of thing. And it it really I don't know. Did it piss you off? It kind of yeah, yeah. Off, no, it 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 really pissed me off because you know. And again, I I really want Aaron's take on this. Um, I I think it does a couple of things. One, it it gives it can give treatment centers a bad name. Mm-hmm. Um, for for and I own a treatment center, so I kind of fall into that category. That what we we just continually take people and take their money. And no, that's mm-hmm. not the case. Not every there are treatment centers that do that, of course. Right. But 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 there are so many out there that don't do that. And then I really wish he just would have never said it. You know, because there's parents out there going, are are you kidding me? We mm-hmm. can't we can't get our kid into one treatment center. You know, um, but but again, your take on this, Aaron, because I'm I'm really interested in what you have to say. Sure. I mean, honestly, the number didn't surprise me because, you know, when I was in early recovery, I was in. Uh, yeah, I went through two traditional rehabs and I was in you know, 12 step meetings in Los Angeles. And there were a lot of celebrities in the rooms I was in then. And I think that particularly for wealthy slash celebrity clients, Mm -hmm. there, there are a lot of predatory people, you know, in quote unquote, the treatment industry or recovery industry, you know, it is an industry, it's a business. And there are many, many good and valuable treatment centers. But because there's a lack of regulation, I think that there are a lot of people um, who I've seen take advantage of, particularly with celebrities, like in terms of like sober coaches and, sure. and, and that kind of thing, 
And that's not to say that all sober coaches are like that. There are, I know people who've gone on tour with sober coaches who were fantastic and, and really valuable to them being able to maintain sobriety. But on the flip side of that, I think that there, that our, our system in general is a little bit broken and we Mm -hmm. don't, you know, we probably have not approached things, approached things sort of like as a society from a multi-pronged effort in a way that we should have. Whereas, you know, for, for many, many years, thinking was sort of like, there was like this one path to recovery. And I think that what we've come to understand anybody who works or studies, you know, the, the business of recovery, that there are many, many ways to, to recover and it's not going to be a one size fits all solution. And I think that as as much as there are barriers in accessing care for people who have financial, cultural, so you know, socioeconomic, racial barriers to accessing treatment, on the flip side, I think that often privilege can be a double-edged sword for people who yep. are are trying to stay in recovery. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and here's one of my thoughts on this because obviously I'm in recovery. I've been to several treatment facilities in the past, um, and and this is how we treat treatment at at, at our facility. Mm-hmm. Our job is to get them off of the drugs and or alcohol first. Mm-hmm. That is first mm-hmm. and foremost. That that remainder of the stake as we really push to keep that client there for the remainder of that 30 days uh, or, 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 or longer if they have that ability to pay the cash price because because insurance is not going to pay for for right. more than 20 than 28 days period. In fact, their job now, if that right, <laughs> yeah. their, their job now is to cut that down. Um, mm-hmm. So so but the recovery process of, you know, that one doesn't one size doesn't fit all. You're absolutely correct. But that, in my opinion, is to be determined after they get out of that. We'll just call it the detox process, mm-hmm. you know, um, and, and and again, I don't have too much of a problem with maybe that that client coming back a second time if 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 the first time what we call worked for them, but they had a slip, they want to come mm-hmm. back, they want whatever you want to call it, a tune-up, whatever it is. I I don't have a problem with that. But when it what but when treatment centers start that three, four, five times and they're charging, I, I'm sorry. I mean seventy-five thousand dollars a month yeah. for God's sake, ninety-nine point nine percent of America cannot afford right. that. You know, right. and you're right. Our system of treatment is broken mm-hmm. and it's broken horribly. Um, and I don't know how we fix that, to be honest with you. I mean, I think a big part of it is that that before somebody comes to a treatment center to detox, they need to be ready to do it. Right. Right. And and I think that, you know, when we look at at the higher success rates of people who enter treatment vis-a-vis a harm reduction route, um, that's not the route for everybody. But there there are higher success rates among people who who you know, whether when I say harm reduction, that may be that they started utilizing programs where they may have um, accessed clean needles. Um, now in New York, we have safe um, supervised injection sites. It may be a matter of being on Suboxone or, you know, mm-hmm. people still use methadone as well. What My point being that I think that there may be some steps that need to happen before they're sent directly to treatment. 
And I think that's particularly true when we looked at treating unhoused people. Mm-hmm. That's a big issue, <clears throat> you know, in California. It's a big issue in New York City. And I think that, you know, the expectations that you're going to send an unhoused, even if we had the resources to send somebody without any sort of support system Mm -hmm. to treatment, and then they're just going to be released and be able to function is ridiculous. You know, we really need to establish like a reconnection to housing stability and community stability before they're going to be able to successfully go through a treatment program Mm -hmm. based on what I have seen. You know, I worked with um, unhoused transition age youth for a few years. I do a lot of uh, of work in the harm reduction community in, in terms of like lobbying and, and, um, and I used to work in harm reduction. So I, from my own personal experience and from what the data shows, I think that we need to readjust our expectations of when somebody's ready. You know, I, as much as I think it's great that drug court has, been a diversion program for folks rather than going to jail. I don't know how successful they've been because of the requirements based on, you know, like abstinence. And, and there's a, there was an article, I believe it was in the New York times earlier this year. There's a judge in um, New Mexico who oversees one of the drug court programs there. And he started not, he started a a sort of like a, a shift in that, in that program, abstinence isn't, it's not, it's a goal. It's not a requirement so that if somebody has a, you know, they still are tested, but if they have, if they've slipped, if they've relapsed while they're in the program, they're not kicked out of the program. Mm -hmm. They are kept in the program as long as they sort of keep moving through their appointments, they're not kicked out of the program. And the goal is really a little bit more holistic in terms of helping them reestablish themselves within the community beyond just abstinence. And I Mm -hmm. think that's really important. You know, we all know that, that, you know, most of us, when we were drinking or using drugs there, there was so much disconnection from our, from ourselves, from our communities. And, and that was often a goal. It was for me when I, you know, for me, it's been almost 20 years of, of, sustained recovery. And I thrive on those connections. Now those are integral to my survival, to my happiness, to my quality of life. And, and everybody should have the same opportunities to have a quality of life by, by not being sort of ostracized from those paths because they've slipped or because maybe they're not ready for complete abstinence. Maybe they need to, you know, make their way through a a medicated assisted treatment first. You know, I think those are a lot of the sort of things that I'm seeing. And there's a shift there. There's a shift within the industry to, to recognizing that. And I think it's vital. And I think that that's where we, where, you know, so, uh, granted, like no, there's very few people who have nine million dollars of disposable <laughs> income. But even if you look at it like sort of like a lesser scale, you know, I think that, that we're you're not going to have to go through the ten rehabs to get it if you sort of have that path set up so that when somebody enters treatment, they're really ready. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it's really meeting them where they're at. Yes. Yeah. That's what harm reduction is, right? It's about yeah. reducing harm. That's all it is. Like no judgment on where they're at. Right. And I think that's so important because I know, you know, I think we all can, can relate to that feeling of just not feeling like a human being and maybe sometimes sure. or not feeling, un not feeling understood, you yeah. know, um, and, and again, that goes back to, to the, to society, not understanding addiction mm -hmm. that, that, that is my new movement. Okay. Mm -hmm. Going into 2023 is wh wherever I speak, I start out with, you have to start to at least try to understand mm -hmm. addiction. You have to try to understand what I'm telling you about the addict's brain, about mm -hmm. wh where we, how we think, you know, where, where our minds are going with this thing. And you have to understand the chemical makeup of these substances that we're putting in our body, because you just, sometimes you just can't stop. So, so on that harm reduction side, and I am for harm reduction, Jason yes. kind of knows where I'm going with this, mm -hmm. yep. you know, but Again, in, in America, we either go far to the left or far to the right in all of our decisions. We 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 never seem to have a, a type of balance in anything that we do. It's either all balls to the wall or not at all. And 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 with harm reduction, just like Brock was saying the, the other day. Yeah, they're giving clean needles. They're giving Narcan. And sometimes they're not even putting Narcan in these in these kits. They're not providing any resource material in these kits for people. They're just giving them clean needles. They're giving them, you know, may maybe some Narcan and hey, good luck to you. Kind of a kind of a thing. I mean, that really hasn't been my experience with harm reduction organizations. I can't speak to every single one, but the ones sure. that I've been affiliated with or that I've had contact with, <clears throat> you know, a big part of it when I worked in harm reduction in Los Angeles, a big part of it was, you know, Again, it's reducing harm. So we offered, we had kits that would keep them from a spreading disease, right? Um, information about other services they could access if they were interested in them. And with the supervised injection sites in New York, the first in the country, they have they have been very successful in terms of getting people to access other services that lead them toward recovery. And they've mm -hmm. only been here for like a year. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's vital that when we look at harm reduction, again, it goes back to that basic tenant of we want to keep people alive. They're not going to recover if they're dead. Mm -hmm. That is the bottom line. And yeah. it's important, not even if you don't care about that person who's suffering with addiction, it matters from an economic standpoint. If you look at the data of the cost, the trickle down cost of mm -hmm. the overdose epidemic in this country, it's not just affecting the person who passes away. The economic ramifications of that person dying from a drug overdose and what that does to their family, what that does to their children, what that does to their community and the economic cost of that, it makes no sense that we're not putting money toward support systems that include fentanyl testing strips and naloxone. I have a teenager. He's 19. He's in college before he, when he was 17, you know, he started, I mean, I've had drug talks with him for years, but one of the things I made him do before he went to college was to take a naloxone training program, which was in the city of New York does a free training program and they give you naloxone and, and, um, 
They don't give you fentanyl testing strips, but I bought a huge amount of them. <laughs> he has them in his apartment. I'm like, just put some in your backpack. And sure. he's like, mom, like, you know, he doesn't he doesn't use drugs, but you know, I'm not naive. You know, most people try substances at some point sure. in college, especially. And even if it's not him, it could be for somebody else. You know, at one point earlier this year, 40% of the Molly in New York City had fentanyl in it. So right. almost half of it, right? So it's he was going to a party one night and said, you know, oh, like so-and-so is going to take Molly. And I said, if you decide that you're going to take it, this is just promise me that you will test it. I said, you can go on YouTube and see exactly how much to scrape off to test it. And it's not like that's not me saying, oh, yes, I think you should go do it. I want to give him all the information that ju that's that's just neutral information. This is neutral information. If you make that decision, this is what you can do to prevent death. Yeah. And I think it's that serious. And I think that, you know, we're so far past this idea that we're going to talk our kids out of doing drugs. That's not to say that the things that we do as parents and as communities do not uh, aren't preventative because they are. But part of drug prevention is arming them with a, self, a sense of self-efficacy. And that's what neutral information does. Sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, you've opened up a lot of you've opened up a can here. OK, I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. Uh, uh, be, be, because I just want to say a couple of things and and please, you know, yeah. get your butt jumped in here, would you please? I will. I'm, okay. I'm taking it in. Okay. 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 Um, when do we talk about abstinence? Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 I mean, what what is wrong with abstinence? And then again, there's I'm nothing just wrong with it. It's right. just that, you know what? There's no. I don't think we should assign a value to it. Because I, I agree. He, because here's the thing. I know people who got sober in the late 90s and, you know, and then I relapsed a few more times, but they were sober for X amount of years. And then sure. they decided to smoke pot and like they smoke pot occasionally and their life hasn't fallen apart. To right. me, that's not like, oh, they left 12 steps and like their life sure. has gone to hell. I agree. Who do, well, I don't care. Like if somebody's recovery, recovery is about, getting back the getting back your life it's not about at recovery doesn't mean abstinence it means recovering right you're recover it's a process of getting back your life so if somebody is a you know has a quality of life has you know is able to function and all that i don't care if they stay on suboxone the rest of their life i don't care if they smoke pot i don't care if they drink it's none of my business it has nothing to do with my recovery and i think that there, you know, because historically the thinking is that abstinence is the only answer. And while that may be true for many people, I don't think it's true for everybody. And I, I that's not to encourage people not to be abstinent, but I think that we need to look at it again more holistically. The goal is having somebody with a quality of life, functioning in society, able to work, have a family, enjoy life. But but I, I just want to touch on the methadone situation for a second, because it took me two years to get off of that crap. And and when you're dealing with methadone, this is the one topic that I just am not going to budge on at all um, when it comes to methadone. I, I, I think methadone is the world's worst drug out there. It is it is so much worse than any other narcotic that's out there, legal or illegal. When you are taking methadone, unless it's the 60-year-old and above street person that has nowhere else to go, 
that um, that is that it's going to keep them off the needles, going to keep them off fentanyl, then I have no problem with that person being on methadone. But when you are a 25-year-old, male or female, and you are strapped to methadone, you can't, you can only get it from the clinic that you originally go to. You cannot leave your city, forget your methadone and walk into another city and get your dose for the day. So if you forget it, you are in big trouble because you are going to start to go through withdrawal symptoms. And those are the worst withdrawal symptoms in the world by far, bar none. So again, my, I believe my responsibility is to tell people that if you want to even go with Zaboxone, I don't have too much of a problem with that, but long-term you're going to be strapped to it. You can't, I mean, you can go places, you can take it with you, but what if you forget it? What if you're somewhere and you can't get it? You yeah. are totally screwed. You're going to, you're going to go, you're going to get as sick as sick can be. And then everything turns to shit. Now you have that chance of going out and get and picking up fentanyl, heroin pills, whatever it is, because the last thing we, we want to be is dope sick. That's kind of my take on, on, on that. So as a treatment facility, we use Zaboxone because I do think it is a fantastic drug for detoxes, detoxing purposes. But we try to do it depending on their use and all of that. There's a lot of ifs that go into that. You know, it, it can last for, we can detox for seven days, 10 days, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it takes with the person. But I'll tell you what, when, when the reality is, if you are strapped to some of those things, you are, that's just it. You're strapped to it. Mm -hmm. It's tough to break, break free of that stuff. New Perceptions North, the premier drug and alcohol treatment and recovery center in Central California. A full continuum of medically supervised top quality care with programs for detox, inpatient residential treatment with dual diagnosis, intensive outpatient treatment, sober living, support groups, and more. With 50 plus years of combined experience and sobriety, Flint Anderson and Thelma Gatlin Wilson provide adult men and women with the highest caliber of professional health care, treating each client with compassion and respect, in a safe, comfortable environment to begin the process of recovery, to proudly create and sustain a life without addiction, call 559-978-1507 or visit newperceptionsnorth.com. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I was never on methadone. I certainly, there's a lot of negative aspects of people being on methadone just physically, right? Sure. I mean, just what it does to people's teeth and their Your bodies and, and whatnot. Um, I was never on methadone. I, I detoxed. Uh, the last time I detoxed was over the course of seven days with the care of a doctor using Suboxone. It was a game changer for me. I mean, at right. the time it wasn't called Suboxone. It was just um, uh, buprenorphine. Buprenorphine, But, right. um, uh, you know, I think there's there's two things. I do know people who um, were and abstinent and have been abstinent for, you know, 25 years and, and did so with a methadone taper program. I think methadone is not an ideal drug. <laughs> you know, they, they, unfortunately for people, um, without insurance or with poor insurance, that's sometimes the only option. Sure. I'm a huge advocate of whatever the medicated assisted treatment is, even methadone. I'm a huge advocate of, 
um, changing the way that the system works, because I agree it's impossible, especially, you know, there was, uh, you know, years ago, an article in the New York Times methadone every morning. And it's like, you know, it's the, the hour, two hours of getting there in the morning to get their doses for the day and then go to work. And that's not a very realistic way for somebody to live. Um, During the pandemic, there were a lot of programs that piloted people being able to access their medicated assisted treatment and take home doses. And there was no increase. There was actually a decrease in people either misusing their take home medication or relapsing on the medication. And I think Mm -hmm. that that says something, you know, Um, again, like I, I avoided methadone for a reason. I was way more afraid of methadone than I was heroin. Um, you know, and obviously like then, like I didn't have fentanyl to deal with in the, in the drug supply. But I think that in terms of drugs like Suboxone, my gosh, I've, I've just, it's, it makes a huge, huge difference. I've seen it for people. It wouldn't have been a solution for me to stay on it long-term, but I know people who have been on it long-term and I, I, you know, if that's, the alternative for if it's either that or them going back to their drug of choice. I think that's the better of the two options. I agree. It's not, I'm not, you know, it's, it's that thing of like, is it ideal? Do I think they'd be better off not being on anything? Of course. But again, you know, I, I know there's a woman that I met through like a speaking engagement who um, is a stay-at-home mom who became addicted to pain medication after a C-section and then, you know, was like, then was like doing the doctor shopping and all that stuff and has been on Suboxone. I don't even know how long, a long time now, years. And um, I, I mean, again, like that wouldn't be a solution for me, but she has a happy functioning life. And I don't, you know, I don't know that it's, our place to 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 judge whether or not that's right for them. So for me, the answer is really about increasing access for it to the people who need it. And I think always encouraging people to find another path, right? Because it's always going to be uncomfortable when you take all of those substances away. Yep. Our neural pathways are so screwed up. But the good news is that your neural path, your your brain is so elastic that we do retrain those neural pathways. It's why, you know, I, I speak to parents. I've spoken to several parents this year who lost children to fentanyl overdoses Mm -hmm. and some of them had substance use issues and some of them didn't. But one of the things that, that I've seen in terms of the data, especially with treating adolescents is that more important for that age group than, than rehab is is cognitive behavioral training. They have really high success rates with the DBT because they're doing sort of this group. They have the, they have the group They're you know, the group that they meet with in addition to the, to their regular appointments with the therapist and the combination of those two things, that's what retrains your neural pathways is cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and I think it's, so I'm so sorry about this drilling. I don't know if you can hear it. <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> Uh, I think that, that, um, you know, the goal should be to be off of substances to do that, because I do think that those substances get in the way of us being able to, to do it, but there might be some people that just aren't going to be capable of doing it 
for whatever reason. And yeah. I would rather see them alive than dead. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah, I think for me, the most disheartening thing, and as you pointed out in your article, uh, talking about uh, 2021, uh, 107,000 Americans died by drug overdose, the number one cause of accidental death. And to me, it's it, I get that we had a, a pandemic. I'm not making light of anybody that, uh, you know, long term effects died, uh, you know, whatever it is. But it this is what pisses me off is why isn't this talked about more? We just had midterm elections, not a single politician. Right. You know, we fought here with, uh, oh, remind me, Jim. Assemblyman Patterson. Yeah, yeah, Jim Patterson here finally got a bill passed in California. Gavin Newsom waited till the last second to sign it, signed it. Yeah, don't. Don't <laughs> we're, even get we're started still, on that one. I'm sorry. Part of my life, I'm still fucking amazed that my fellow Californians reelected the guy. Yep. Anyways, uh, three to five million. I mean, that's a fraction of a dent in this in this huge state with right. what it is and how it's affecting and I'm glad that you're bringing in a different perspective with harm reduction because of what we're seeing is very much a see we're doing something when they're really not doing right. anything. Oh, they're, they're no, they're not because it's not again, as you know, it's not about like it's it's that's one prong of it. Right. Like, again, right. it's like, OK, let's keep people alive. A big part of this that 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 people don't want to look at or when I say people, I guess I mean politicians is, you know, what you did see leading up to the midterm elections was so much talk about fentanyl yep. on from both parties. Oh, it should be a weapon of mass destruction. We should label it a weapon of mass destruction. This is an extension of our failed drug policies. The war on drugs is why we have fentanyl flooding the drug right. supply right, right now. And right. I know that there's so many talking points about, oh, it's, you know, it's because of our borders. Bullshit. It's I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. No, go. No, you can say whatever you complete want. Yes. You know, the fact that fentanyl has flooded the drug supply and that's not just opiates. Right. Is because it's much less risky to import the components that make synthetic, you know, you know, black market fentanyl than it is to the risks of uh, like an agricultural crop like cocaine or heroin traditionally, right? So that's, there's for, for I'm not talking about the, the dealers here. They're at the bottom of the scale. Like right. going after them is right. pointless. Right. Going after the, 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 the main suppliers, right? The risk that they, they take on in managing crops and then getting those, making the drugs and then getting them into this country, that's, way more risk than being able to package in other little packages, really tiny amounts of these different chemicals to make fentanyl. You know, it's, it's like, there's so much wrong targeting when yeah. it comes to our drug policy. You know, the DEA is going to punish a pharmacy because they, because they wrote out too many Suboxone um, prescriptions, but we have people dying left and right. So we're not going to make that available to people. But then we also want to tell everybody that there's fentanyl in your ha Halloween candy, which is the most ridiculous, <laughs> the most ridiculous, like false news stories that circulated in October, this idea 
that drug dealers were making rainbow colored fentanyl in order to like get kids addicted. Like it's insanity. It's complete insanity. And it's the same sort of insanity that 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 pushed our war and drugs policy in, you know, from the 60s on up, you know, 70s and 80s on up. It's it's we're not looking at what the root cause here is right so well, but but we're also look we're we're also not we're not attacking this in in the right way i work with dea i work with a lot of these people okay and and the fact is I, you know jason knows i have this saying when you're when you're fighting a dragon you don't cut off the tail you cut off the head and and the the bottom line here is that well, what do you think who, who what's the head then the head the head are the whether it's the cartels it's china the, the ones that are manufacturing this stuff it's and, that's not the head i'll tell well, you you know what the head is the head is that we have very failed support systems because we could cut off all the supply in the world it's that's not the issue there will always find another way to get supply in. oh it's, I, I agree with you I, I, no the problem I, is is that people take drugs because our uh, our society is sick when we don't take care of, course. of the sickest person. We are just as sick as they are. That's, you know, of course, but there's, but there's two sides to that though, Aaron, there is that side. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more, but the other side of that coin is we still have people shipping that shit into us. Okay. Yeah. And, and you, and you have to go after somebody here. It's, that, such that's, a, it's a waste of time. I, I, see, I, I don't totally think so. Disagree. I, see, I don't because I agree with you that 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 going after the small time drug dealer. Yes, I think that that is a waste of time. But 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 when we are allowing this crap, OK, to to from China, wherever it is, China to be shipped into Mexico for Mexico to get it over our borders. You bet your ass. There is a time when we have to stand up and say, guess what, guys? Enough. There are two sides of this that we have to try and somehow solve. And one is that, and the other is our society. All right. And the fact that we are never going to truly win the war on drugs, but we can definitely put a dent in it if we, if we, if we wanted to. And I just don't think we want to. I think politicians are using this as another platform to keep running, to keep running, to keep getting elected over and over again. And they don't do shit in this thing. They just don't do shit. But but and and again, our treatment, our treatment system is so broken here. I mean, it's I'm going to be long gone before that thing even begins. All right. To 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 get better. I think we all are going to be long gone. We are we are not making any steps towards towards repairing this this the the, the treatment industry. We're not making any any advancement and working with insurance companies. Insurance companies are one of the, the, in my opinion, are criminal, are criminal and not allowing us to do our jobs. This thing is broken in 18 different ways. Oh, I agree. It's broken in 18 different ways because, I mean, you know, it goes back. Our whole our entire healthcare system has nothing to do with keeping people healthy. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that's a right. big, big part of the problem. And, you know, I. I think that the sort of fundamental way that things are going to change is that they need to change before somebody gets to the point that they're turning to drugs. Sure. Every single person who turns to drugs does so because it's a coping mechanism. Absolutely. It's a maladaptive coping mechanism. The drugs and alcohol aren't the trauma. There is a Correct. trauma underneath that. And I agree. 
I say this, I've said, I said this in my book, I've said this to people. And sometimes people look at me like I'm crazy. Heroin saved my life. I would have killed myself if I had not found heroin at 13. I understand. understand Okay. That's not that I'm I'm not suggesting that as (laughs) an idea for people who have suicidal ideation. But the point being is that, you know, we don't, we aren't raising kids with the tools at largely because most of us don't have them, you know? And I think that that's really, really where it starts is, is, you know, I, because I was a kid who started using really young, I talked to parents a lot. I talked to kids a lot. And a big, big part of this is that we don't start talking to kids about drugs early because the talks about drugs happen before we ever mention the word drugs. That's right. That that drug prevention starts with give. giving our kids self-efficacy, giving our kids tools and modeling emotional regulation. How many adults do you know, like they may have never had a drug problem, have terrible, a terrible time with emotional (laughs) regulation, (laughs) right? So many, Uh. like, what do you think road rage is? Like, I mean, there's so many, so many ways, right? You look at just the way people are over politics on Twitter, the way that like people will get riled up at like a rally and turn racist. I mean, like this is all these are all people who have really poor emotional regulation. And 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 I think it's something that doesn't just start. It's not just about parents. It's also about the way that we educate, you know, the way our education system. I mean, it's such a it feels like a a 10 headed beast. Right. And it is. It is. But I don't feel hopeless about it. Well, let me let me tell you another piece that's seriously broken here. All right. You, you know, and again, I agree with you on the education piece of this. Right. But the biggest broken piece in most of this stuff is is our school districts. They are they they are not allowing you know this. They are not allowing us in to tell the truth about this stuff. They don't want to spend they want to spend the money on Red Ribbon Week. They want to spend the money on the DARE program. Those things don't have a goddamn thing to do with anything. They 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 do not matter. They don't every statistic tells you that they don't do not have an effect. I, I talk to speakers all across the country here, all right? And every school, not every school district, but most of them are telling all of us to soften our message. We can't we can't come in there and we can't talk about the real truth on what is going on with this. We can't get parents in the room to even sit there and listen. This is this is one of the biggest problems well, that that we're facing. I think a lot of people want to just treat life and I kind of have a struggle with this even with my own children with some stuff is that it's all life is going to be good for them if we give them rainbows and butterflies and give them self-esteem which three people here know shit i had to earn that thing uh and it's still work daily because it's not always there it's a thing in flux it's not just something like look i got self-esteem yay right doesn't work that way but I think it's a lot of the painting the the sunshine and rainbows as opposed to really giving like you said tools like my kids are aware these are the things that work for me i got one kid that resistance resists meditation and all these different things well hey they work for me this is the best i can do is help you with the tools that i have you might have some different ones 
And so I think it's just really disheartening. Like Flint was saying, we go into these schools and they want to present it like it's sunshine and rainbows. And you come in once and you present a nice little soft message and everybody's going to be great. And that's not the way it works, especially when so many of these students are going home and they're getting that trauma buzz. And that's where it's coming from. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like I mean, said, I mean, it's it's you know, it's all like the behavior is is not the wound. It's the reaction to the wound, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I. It was I, for me. Yeah. What, what, <laughs> yeah. What, what, yeah. What, look, there's the three of us sitting here. There, we we all had trauma, and whatever that trauma is, it was traumatic to us. Sometimes mm-hmm. trauma doesn't even have to be evil. You know, it could be something as simple as as a girlfriend breaking up with you, and and you know, and your first girlfriend, or 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 losing your mother. I mean, truthfully, you know, I I don't know. I, I think we we may have talked about this the last time I was on. You know, Gabor Mate talks, you know, he's done a lot of, of of really informative work about trauma and about treating addiction and the ways in which we approach it. And one of the things that I think is is really um, vital that he says, and it, it may initially sound distressing, but I, I think that we need to look at it differently, is that it's impossible to raise a child in, in this world without trauma. So... Mm-hmm. I don't think that there's anybody, I think it's impossible to, to grow up in the world that we have and not experience trauma just based on what's happening in the world. How do you, you know, like you see everything, there are times that, and I have the privilege of doing this, that I have to turn off the news because it's so distressing that I, I don't even know how to process it. So how does a five-year-old that passes by the news and like, you know, not to become political, but like, you know, with the president we had before this one, like some of the ways that it became acceptable to speak were traumatizing to kids that you could, that you could make fun of somebody for having a disability or um, say that, people who wanted, you know, people who were at a, like a a KKK rally were there were, some of them were good people. I mean, like, there's just, this is a, a there's a distressing environment that has been amplified obviously by technology. And I don't, I don't hate technology. There's a lot of amazing things about technology and the ways that it can connect us. But I think that there is just a constant onslaught of like negativity and punching down and it became, you know, more and more acceptable um, from the president on down. And it's, it, I find it, I find it distressing. I talk to kids and they find it distressing and I cannot imagine, you know, I have a five-year-old and a 19-year-old and I, (laughs) I have to put those sort of blinders on sometimes and just keep doing the work and having hope because otherwise like, I just want to like lay down and be like, what's the point, you know? So I can only imagine how hard it is for a young person now. Oh yeah. And we had, we had breaks from it growing up. I didn't, you know, I mean the internet, I mean, the internet came about like, well, I mean, I was in high school, but I didn't really have a- my first access was like AOL chat rooms you know, when I was like, you know, in early college. So like <laughs> it was a very different time. Uh, I agree with you. It, it, and I've had conversations with my kids and my girlfriend and I talk about this is, you know, trauma is inevitable in some way, shape or form. Like Flint said, it could be as much as the girl that you were in love with breaks up with you. 
I did I ever tell you that story or something? You nailed that one on the head. High school sweetheart <laughs> cheated on me. You know, I was like, ah. um, but it's inevitable. But like you said, there we have to have better tools with these traumas. They're going to come. How are we going to cope with it? Not only cope with it, but but be able to take a look at it, extrapolate and decide that we're not going to let that us go down that path. We're going to go that other path with it. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, you've written a book. He needs to write a book. People have told me, I, you know, our stories relate, connect with people and you know, they can help others to go, Oh, they went through something similar. They got on the other side. So can I, you know, right. it's a lot for me. It was a lot of reframing oh, yeah. a lot of different yeah. things. Yeah. And and like you nailed uh, earlier on, once that sense of community was there, that changed my life tremendously. You bet. That sense of community is just, I, I, I don't care where you're at in your recovery, you know, whether you're in the beginning, in the middle, in the end, I mean, 21 years later, my community is, is the most important thing to me. It, 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 it truly is. And, and now it's just ingrained in me. That's that, you know, Aaron, there's a lot of times I wish I could do my, I dream a genie move and, and just fast forward everybody, you know, 20, 30 years ahead. Um, mm. So, so, so they can have what, 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 what we have, you know, again, that doesn't mean that I'm cured. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. But but what it's telling other people is that, you know what, this does take work. Okay. You know, treatment, however you want to go about it, that's that's okay. But there's there is there's a rainbow at the end. Okay. If you if if you can if you can hang on and just work and, and it's hard work. Okay. That's the other thing we have to tell these kids. This is if you go down this path, this is not an easy path. Recovery is hard. It's changing so many things about us that we maybe don't want to change. But I'll tell you what, if if you if you can get there, man, I'll tell you what, there's nothing better in the world to me than sobriety right now. Nothing. I wouldn't be here. I think that for for a lot of people, I don't know if I I mean, it's it's definitely it's not an easy process, but I think that sort of like the it's it's that thing of like you're ready to change when it becomes too painful not to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, the importance even, you know, and I part of with the article, you know, while Matthew Perry's story may be very different than most people's because of his fame and because of his money, at the end of the day, it's valuable because people will listen to him, right? And and I think that the the reason that there's such an appetite, not just from people who've experienced addiction, but part of why there's an appetite for for addiction memoirs in general is that, you know, we're looking to see a reflection, right? And I think that that's what's important. And I think that as much as I wrote my book for people who were struggling, I think maybe even more, I wrote it for people who didn't really understand addiction. Mm -hmm. And the number one comment I've I've received from people has been from people who haven't struggled with addiction and that they were shocked at how much they related to hmm, in terms of about sort of like the what's happening inside, like sort of that inner dialogue and and the things that like I was struggling with and, and maybe they didn't reach for substances as a solution, but they understood it so much more because they could see, they could kind of see how that could happen, right? Because that's that's sort of like the overarching message. Addiction is not a moral failure. It's a public health issue. 
And it's right. when you're looking at addiction, you're looking at a human being struggling with a very human condition. Yes. And I think that's sort of like the the takeaway that I I I I want to bring for people and that I think is important in 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 what we're doing right now, talking about it and anybody who writes about it, advocates, speaks about it. It's really about increasing empathy and compassion and and seeing that this is not about there, this is not a, a sense of, of, of that somebody is a moral failure right. because they they struggle with addiction. Yeah. It's never a moral failure ever. I, I, I'm I'm sorry. It's just it's just not, you know, um, I, I've heard that for so many years, not 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 from vast amounts of people, but there are people out there that think that that's just what we are. We're just drug addicts. It, it you know, we're pieces of shit, um, you know, what whatever, however they want to mm -hmm. describe us. And the reality is I've for, for those that are in recovery, I'll tell you what, I've never met finer people in my entire life. And, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that, Yeah, you know, I will go to my grave with that statement. Well, yeah, I think that anybody who has gone through that sort of level of physical, mental, existential, psychic trauma yep. and struggle, they you're forced to evolve or die. Right. So I think that that, you know, Sometimes for people who haven't gone through that, they've been able to skate by without looking, sort of looking inward and mm -hmm. and um, facing parts of themselves that may be hard to accept. Mm -hmm. And I think that anyone who's in long term recovery to some degree, maybe some, you know, I mean, there's plenty of people I've met in recovery that I didn't care for. Right? <laughs> but, okay, but I can just, raise you my know, hand. They're humans, it. right? You know. Yeah. But I think that you know, I feel. Somebody had asked me recently, like what I thought bravery was, and they're like, you know, because they said, "Yo, you, you're so brave to have written this book," and da da da. And and I think that when I, like earlier on in my recovery, I probably, when I started sharing my story, I thought that like bravery and like courage meant like telling the truth, and I totally have changed that. Not that it, you know, doesn't take any courage to tell the truth, but I think that like sort of the real bravery and the real power, like our own personal power comes from accepting the truth. And that means like accepting who we are, even the parts of us that we don't like. And that doesn't mean that we don't strive to change them, but accepting who we are and where we are and accepting who other people are and where they are. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when I see people, you know, addict or not, when I see people really like struggling in life, you know, regardless of what their situation is, I think it always comes back to that. Like they are not in acceptance of how things are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, uh, that's that rigorous honesty is one of the things that can hang many people up. And we all have those moments. And it's not sure. like, like I said, it's not a constant thing. Not at every moment. My rigorously honest, I want to blame this, that. And then I go, Oh shit, I have a huge part in this. Then, <laughs> you know, or then break it down and go, wow, this was all me and my thinking. Right. Uh I gotta adjust that real quick. Uh, you, you know, bet. or whatever it may be. But you know, and when I when I brought up community, I don't just mean for the addict, I mean for everyone in general, you mm -hmm. know. 
uh, it makes me think Flint and I kind of, he, he won't, uh, tout it, but, but we each kind of have an adopted, uh, transient, so to speak. And, you know, Flint's try to give him clothing. I have a gentleman that, uh, he's, doesn't remember me, but every time, Hey, Arthur, how's it going? What, you know, can I get you Gatorade? There's something, you know, it, it's to me disheartening that we lose that humanity yeah. for everybody again, to meet them where they're at. Right. It's just kindness, right? I yeah. mean, it's like, regardless of whatever choices people have made in life and whether or not they were even choices, every person deserves kindness and compassion and shelter and food. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, I saw this Facebook post where somebody talked about like this, this unhoused person that they came across and that, you know, that they bought them food and then talked to them and, and the bot, you know, it was like this, like very heartfelt post. And at the bottom, they said, you know, not every homeless person Mm -hmm. is a drug addict. And it really pissed me off. And I ended up writing an article about it (laughs) because you know what? I don't care if you're actively shooting drugs, you still deserve my kindness. And like, I'll, you know, if I have it, like I'll give somebody money when I have it. And it's not my business. If you give somebody something, it's not your business, how it's spent, what they do with it. You're just showing them a kindness. And there's no, you know, this idea that some people deserve help and some people don't is complete BS. Like everybody deserves that help. Mm -hmm. And I think that our goal should be doing what we can to make it as easy as possible for people to reach out for that help. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of a situation here. And I, it's funny to me in retrospect, and I like to end the least with a little laugh. Hopefully, we all get a chuckle. Was a buddy of mine goes, geez, that bum needs to get a fucking job. And I, well, I'll leave his name out. And I went, you know, I don't think his resume is quite in order. <laughs> you know, like, maybe oh, just, yeah. Just today, a hi. Hey, do you need something to How drink? How are you? Yeah. I mean, not to my, I, I'll, I'll just say, add this to that is that, you know, having worked with, that that population it's the amount of things that people don't consider like you know i'd work with these kids who they didn't have an id in order to get services they had to have an id so we had to find their birth certificate they might not even have known where they were born i mean the amount of things that you have to go through and then the waiting to get the things it's it's unbelievable Yeah. yeah Yeah, yeah, it's 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 definitely maddening. You know, this this young guy that's out in our out in our parking lot, I, I think about him all the time. And 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 the sad the sad piece is um his, his, his he's got such mental health issues that he cannot even I mean, Aaron, when when you see this young man, I, I've looked in his eyes and he's got these these beautiful blue eyes, but he's so filthy dirty that, 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 that I, I, I try to look past that, you know, into that face of his, but he cannot even, I mean, it's pouring rain the other day. I carry, not, I'm not trying to blow my own horn here, but I carry, I brought it up. It's fine. I, I, you know, I carry clothes in the back of my car, back of my truck. So when I see him, I'm going to continue to offer him to him because this kid is standing out there with torn pants, no socks, shoes that have, that have looked like they've already walked 80,000 miles. And he cannot comprehend the fact that I want to give him something to wear. He goes, he goes, no, he literally says, no, no, thank you. I I, I don't need it. 
Right. When he's in rags. I I, I mean, one of these days I'm just going to tackle his ass <laughs> and I'm going to put and I'm going to put I'm going to put the clothes on him. I don't know. Uh, but you know, yeah, it, it's it's some people do they do need they de- need our kindness. They need our help. Absolutely. Because I, I tell you, like I mean, all of us probably have those memories of like when we weren't in great shape. And somebody, there was a kindness that somebody showed us and we remember those, you know, and I, I never, I never experienced, um, homelessness, you know, I, and I, I, I can only imagine just sort of the level of trauma just associated with experiencing that. Oh, goodness gracious. What a conversation. I always get emotional, like right at the end. (laughs) But (laughs) the good news is, is that I'll, I'll just add this quickly before we end is that I have seen people recover who nobody thought would recover. You bet. I've seen people who were celebrities who had a lot of money who were like, oh, they're for sure going to die because look at how they're going and they have endless money and da, da, da. And they recovered. I've seen people who were homeless and had mental health issues and nobody ever thought that they would get it together. And they couch surfed and went to 12-step meetings and, and stayed in recovery. There is as long as people are alive, there's always, always hope. Absolutely. 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 Yeah, we've had friends from the penthouse to the jailhouse and to the back you know what house. <laughs> yep, mm-hmm. For sure. So Aaron, if people want to find out more about you, your book, I, I mean, you write for so many different periodicals. So uh, how can they how can they connect with you? I'm just my name at Aaron Carr on all social media. I have a, a sub stack where I have my advice column, Ask Aaron, which I've been doing for 12 years. Oh my gosh, 12 years. <laughs> um, and and my website's just AaronCarr.com. Awesome. I'm not hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> That's K-H-A-R too for people. K-H-A-R, and we'll, yeah. And we'll put the links in the podcast description. <laughs> yeah. um, Mr. Anderson. Yeah, Aaron, thank you for, for joining us again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I love the conversation back and forth. Me too. You know what? You're <laughs> you're doing great stuff. And and, and again, just, just thank you. We'll, we'll definitely thank be in you. touch because we want to do these again. You bet. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. If you or a loved one is struggling with addiction, please call Parents and Addicts in Need at 559-579-1551 or check us out online at painnonprofit.org. Follow us on social media at Pain Nonprofit. Please subscribe to the podcast and share with others wherever you get podcasts and on YouTube. To donate, please click the link in the description and help us save more lives gripped by addiction. This podcast contains the views and opinions of hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. 
In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page.